Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai to the city square in the front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king and implore his favor to plead with him for her people. Hathach came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death. Unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble the Jews who are, in fa- who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the story. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name, amen. So this this story is it's unfolding to remind us of where we've been. Esther chapter one starts out with the story of King Xerxes or King Ashwaris, depending on what name you want to use. I tend to use Xerxes because it's easier to say. He has his big lavish party in the midst of the party. After six months of gathering, he had another week-long party. After the open bar and the drinking, he summons his wife, uh, King or Queen Vashti, to come uh, and to display her beauty to the people. She refuses to display her beauty, and the king basically gets upset, and he banishes her. Um, his wife of you know, 15 to 18 years, they had many children together. 
He basically just cuts her off, sends her away. Uh, Between chapters 1 and 2, a number of years had elapsed during this time. Through history, we know that uh, King Xerxes had a military campaign. There was a a rising power. The Greeks were coming up. He He kind of attempted to challenge them. It didn't go well for a number of reasons. He comes home. And at the beginning of chapter two, we read after these things, he basically realizes that he misses his wife. And he's like, man, I, I want a wife. What I, what I do? And so he has the very first bachelor episode. So they basically take all of the young, pretty women's essentially into captivity, bring them in to display before the king. He tries them out. He, he lands on this orphaned uh, Jewish girl. And names her his next queen. Nobody knows that she's Jewish. Uh, the story last week, as we picked it up after the, the, the beauty contest and the arrival of the new queen, her cousin, Mordecai, who is like a father to her, um, is at the gate of the city. He, he's in an official capacity and he hears all of the people coming and going. As people are coming and going, he hears... Two of the king's eunuchs talking about uh, an assassination plot against the king. So Mordecai gets Queen Esther and lets her know of this plot. She goes before the king, says, hey, my cousin Mordecai, he's down here. There's an assassination plot against you. You need to do something. They collect all the evidence. They find the evidence to be true. Those two guys are executed. We would think that Mordecai would be advanced but he's not. And a guy by the name of Haman the Agagite comes, to the, comes to, to the story. And as he rises to power, he's coming and going. As he comes and goes as a liaison of the king, everybody bows down and essentially worships him. But Mordecai wouldn't bow. Haman doesn't notice. The people that Mordecai are working with after a number of days, after this happens a few times, they begin questioning him. Why don't you do this? Why are you not do? Why are you not bowing down? And in that conversation, Mordecai says, "I'm not doing this because I'm a Jew." And so those guys, those buddies of his, go with that information to Haman to see if this is okay. What's happening? And Haman is angry. We learn that Haman comes from. He's an Agagite. He's a descendant of um, the Amalekites. There's bad blood between the Jews and the Amalekites. And so in his anger, he's not content just to have Mordecai put to death. He comes up with this plan in order to annihilate all of the Jews, basically of the known world. It would have been his whole kingdom. And as they write up the edict in multiple languages, it goes out. It's sent to to all the different provinces and Haman and the king sit down and they begin drinking. And in verse 1, this is where we pick up our story. We read, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And so we start with this story, the story of Mordecai now knows This edict that's gone out, he recognizes what has happened as a result of his refusing to bow down to Haman. Our culture, 
I don't know if stoic's the right word, but, but we're sort of raised in a place when we're suffering to try to, you know, to bite, to bite our lip, to keep our chin up, to, to not show sort of signs of weakness. In this culture and other places around the world that, that when there's mourning, you mourn, you let everybody know. And Mordecai does this. He puts on basically like a burlap bag. I think of what would carry potatoes. He tears his clothing. He throws dirt or ash on himself, sort of symbolizing death and mourning, weeping. He goes out. I believe this mourning is sincere. If there was one person that you could point the finger to whose fault it is, it's Mordecai. I don't think he's suddenly like a, a hero of the Jews. Remember, the Jewish people that wanted to go back to their place, they could go back. Those that remained are a couple generations removed from the captivity. They had sort of acclimated. And now their lives are in jeopardy. And Mordecai knows, like, maybe I should have just bowed. Like, why did I do this? You know, knucklehead me. When I read this story, I think of uh, when I was 25 and I went on my first combat mission, I'll never forget that moment in my life. Up to that, the whole military thing was like fun. We jumped out of planes, we blew up stuff, we shot, we had a lot of fun. But that night on September 9th in the Northern Arabian Gulf, as I was putting my magazine in my gun, I was saying, Gunner, what did you get yourself into? How in the world did you? And I didn't have a lot of time to think it over. But there's sort of this, you make a decision and then there's sort of implications. And so Mordecai had made his he he made a decision that he wasn't going to bow down and worship this guy that represented King Xerxes, who declared himself King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's iron, it, like the, the fact that history tells us that that's how he refers to himself. There's only one King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and that's Christ. And so he doesn't bow to this guy. And I do think that sometimes, or maybe oftentimes, doing the right thing is the harder thing to do. I know I've made decisions in my life where I've had to talk to somebody or do something and you do it and it's sort of done and there's no taking it back. You know you did the right thing, but I just, my stomach goes up in knots because it could result in a fractured relationship in the the immediate, like over time sometimes they're restored. But I just see this guy, I didn't bow. Maybe I should have bowed, but I, I, and here we are. All of my people, there is an order that's gone out to all of the regions. It, count, it came out the day before Passover. It would be like it came out in spring. And, and basically the whole world gets the instructions that at the end of the year, it's open season on the Jews. There's no, there's no limit. Kill them all and take all of their stuff. And so he's wailing. He's crying. He's in agony. He makes his way to the king's gate. He's not able to proceed beyond the king's gate. In this whole story, there's very much a separation between the king and the people. This is, you know, I'm I'm glad I watched Downton Abbey after Anna was in the hospital. You know, I got caught up and now I see it everywhere that there's like this very clear distinction between the upstairs people and the downstairs people. And that show, for those of you who watch it, it's kind of there's. There's the, the rich, wealthy. They have their bubble. Uh, then there's the downstairs people who, who they're in the real world working. And, and often that line between the downstairs and the upstairs, it's totally, I mean, it's a, a, a thick line that the upstairs people just have no clue 
what's going on. And so the king says that at my gate, no mourning, no sackcloth, no bad news comes in here. And so the people who are behind that line really don't have a clue what's going on in the real world. And so here's Mordecai at the edge of the gate making a spectacle of himself. There's no telephones. There's, he's trying to get the attention of his, his cousin Esther, who's now the queen, who's oblivious to all that's going on. And in verse 4, we see, Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen... Uh, let's see here. Yeah, I'm in the right spot. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And this chapter is one of those, a lot of commentaries where I kind of interrupt, like the whole navigating this text is, is there many, one guy said this week that caught my attention about this. He said that this is, this chapter in Esther, if God's not present by word through all of the book of Esther, in this chapter alone, he's not only most absent, but he's also most seen in his absence. And this has been a difficult chapter to sort of to, to navigate when it comes to notes because it's for, I've been just reading the story over and over and trying to imagine what's there and some of it's absent, some of it's trying to, to feel what's going on. And, and so I kind of have to talk through what I've been seeing this week. And so she gets the news and the question I'm thinking, it says that she writhed, she was in anguish. And I, this is where I got in trouble last night. Anna and I are talking back and forth. I kind of normally like kind of debrief kind of where I'm going to go with with the message. And she looked at me and she's like, you know, you've really been ruining the book of Esther. You're, you're, you're preaching it like a boy. She's like, this is one of my favorite childhood stories. And like, you're, you're, you're taking this and you're, and I'm like, well, I don't know. This is what I see is what I see. Like I, and the part that got me in trouble is this, this part because she's right. Like she's in anguish. She's upset, but I don't think that she has a clue what's going on. I think she got word that, Hey, your cousin, aren't you related to that Mordecai guy? He's out front making a spectacle of himself wearing burlap, at, like burlap and ash, and he's screaming and wailing, rolling on the ground. What's wrong with your family? And so I think she's like, I see this initially, that her, her anguish is like, what is he doing? Because look what she does. Here, Mordecai, here's a new pair of shoes. It'll make you feel better. What do they call that? Retail therapy? <laughs> Everybody who laughs understands what it is. I don't get retail therapy. Like shopping doesn't make me feel better. And Anne, like, so, so, and I'm trying to give the others. And Anne's like, well, I always thought this as a kid. It was more like she can't, he can't come into the king's palace because he's the way he's dressed. So, it's like when you go to a restaurant and you don't have a tie on. And when I was a kid, I remember going to these places. I don't go to them anyway. In and Out doesn't do that to you, so I, that's where I eat. And but like where I've been to places where they look at you and you're like, sorry, you don't have a coat and tie, and so they run and get you one and they throw it on you so that you can like you're welcome there. I hated that as a kid. 
And that's a different step. It's not in my notes. That, um, and so there's this sort of this, maybe, kind of like, well, maybe this picture of like, here's some clothes. Maybe he can come closer. We can figure it out. And I, I don't think that's the case. And I'll, I'll show it. I think it's like, here's some new clothes. Like whatever's going on, this will fix it. Like new pair of shoes, new pair of pants, really nice shirt. This is from the king's, this is from the king's supply. And so she sends this stuff down to him and we're told that he rejects it. Like the situation is far more dire and extreme than a new pair of clothes. And so he rejects the clothing and Esther gets word of this. Obviously, because they go back there, he didn't want the clothes. And so she is going to get this eunuch, Hathach. And it's interesting. I've always in my mind understood this chapter that, that basically Esther and Mordecai get together and they're having this conversation at Starbucks over a cup of coffee and saying, hey, this is what's going on in my life. This is what's happening. Are you aware of this whole situation? This is the telephone game. This whole story is there's Esther. Hathach goes down, talks to Mordecai. Mordecai gives him stuff, goes back. And when I think of the telephone game, I think of when I was in Hell Week, about the, the, the fourth day, it was dark. And I played telephone game and like the stakes were high. The instructor said, hey, we're going to give you a saying. And when you do the saying, you're going to have to go back between all of your guys in your boat crew. And if you guys get it wrong, you're going to pay the man. And so we're like, okay, this is the stakes. And we don't want to pay the man. That means bad stuff. And I just remember it was dark. I remember there were like lights from the vehicles all around us. And I don't know what number guy it was, but I just remember seeing like the image of my buddy, like kind of like limping towards me. He's like, okay, man, don't get this mess. Don't mess this up. I, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to pay the man. What, what did he say? He looked at me. He said, if, Milt, if Milton Bradley owned junior mints, would they be Milton junior or Bradley mints? I was like, are you serious? <laughs> Can you, I've never forgotten it since then. And so we went back and forth and we said this. And it's like, did we get it? I can't remember. We got it, I think. And, and so the, the reason I say that is like, this is this whole story is this going back and forth. And it's easy for us to miss this. Esther never sees Mordecai. Mordecai never sees Esther. This guy, Hathach, is going back and forth, relaying the situation. And a lot can get kind of lost in translation. Or maybe even the intensity of the matter can be lost. In the, like, here he is, wailing, mourning, understands the situation at hand. And I don't think Esther has any clue. I, I don't, she seems a little bit aloof. I know we think of Esther sort of like it's this, this, this great lady and what she does is great. But up to this point in the story, she's basically won a beauty contest and she's living the high life, getting manicures, pedicures, doing whatever girls do, like whatever they do in this situation. She's just sort of being pampered and has no idea what's going on out there. And so verse five, then Esther summons Hathach from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And, and that's the right there, that last phrase. That's why I believe that Esther just didn't know. And I don't think it was necessarily her being aloof and unaware of the situation and just sort of disconnected. It, 
I don't think it had anything to do with her personally. I think it had to do with her situation that she's the, the queen. And now the king has her behind many, many walls. And the whole news of the world isn't out there. Because then when she sends Hathach, what she says to go find out from Mordecai is what this was. Like, what is what is he doing and why it was? She doesn't know why he's down there. She just knows my cousin's down there. He's weeping, wailing, crying out in sackcloth and ash. She tried to get him new clothes. And so Hathach has the mission. Go down there and figure out what is going on and why is it going on. And so verse 6, Hathach went out to Mordecai to the city square in the front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction. So when Hathach goes down, and I wonder about Hathach. I don't know. Is he an undercover Jew also? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. I don't know. He goes down. Why? The queen sent me down here to talk to you about what's going on and why is this happening. And so then Haman begins rehashing the story. Look, it says all that had happened to him. Well, What happened to him? Haman was promoted. Haman is an Agagite. Haman, when he started coming down, like they do, they started bowing down to him. I refuse to bow. They started asking me, why did you refuse to bow? I told them because I was a Jew. Haman is an Agagite. He hates the Jewish people. And because of what I did, he coordinated with the king to have an edict written that would have all of the Jews killed. He says, here is the edict. Apparently there were a lot of them. The edict was written on papyrus or stone or however, and it was written in multiple different languages. And Mordecai had a copy of the text and he hands it to Hathach. And he says, you go to her and tell her this. And notice what he says. Well, first he says, the destruction of the Jews, he's acknowledged in telling the story that he's a Jew. And if he's a Jew, what does that make Esther? A Jew. The whole point, of, like up to this point, they've lived in secrecy. There's been no revelation to the, those that they're around in the kingdom, to the king that, that Esther is a Jew. She's been instructed by Mordecai, you keep that quiet. Don't let him find out that you're a Jew. And then by the end of this, which I didn't read, he says that he might show Esther and inform her and order her to go to the king and implore his favor to plead with him for her people. The cat's out of the bag. So as Hathach goes back and relays all of this to Esther, I can only imagine the look on Esther's face. Did she just go pale? He just said that we're Jews. They all know we're Jews. This edict, reading this, this is the king's seal. Like, there's no undoing that. Like, we are, like, this is bad. Like, the story doesn't tell us how much time elapsed. I don't know if this was really quick or or that she gets this information and she says, Hathach, you stay there. Don't leave my room. I need to think about this. I need to process how am I supposed to handle this. But now she's in a real pickle. She's on top of a fence. 
And she's got to get, she's going to get down one way or the other. Either she's going to be in denial about who she is or she's going to have to stand up. But she no longer, this dual life of hers, it can't go on. She's been exposed. I remember when I was in the military and I had just become a Christian. I know I've shared the story a number of times, but there I was, a young 23-year-old SEAL. I'd become a Christian. I had a lot of questions about Christianity, so I thought, well, man, I'll just read through the Bible and I'll answer all my questions. But, but I was doing this in total secrecy. When I, when I was with the SEALs, I, when I was my guys, I was a SEAL. This whole Christianity thing was a totally compartmentalized other area of my life. And so I would stash my Bible like under my shirt. I'd go in the bathroom. I'd shut the stall door and I'd sit in there just reading the Bible. Or I'd go out at lunch and I'd go down to my car in privacy reading the Bible. And I'll never forget the one day when my buddy's like, I'm done. It's time to go back into the compound. And I'm getting out of my car and this friend of mine looked at me. He said, are you a Bible thumper? No way, man. No, I'm not a Bible thumper. Not at all. Not at all. And he looked at me, he's like, bummer, man, because I am. I thought I'd found another, like, and it, 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 it really was a, the starting point of my life trying to figure out how does this Christianity sort of fit together with my life? And I'd viewed them as sort of two different things. And the reality is, is that God wants our faith in Christ to be like the the center of all that we are in every single area. And I think that there's a lot of Christians, a lot of us, and I'm guilty at times of like knowing how to handle situations where we're like Esther, like our, our faith, our understanding is, is distinct. It's different. We don't have to bring this out. And so now she's been confronted. It's like, she's exposed. She is a Jew. The situation is dire. And how is she going to respond? And so in verse 10, we see that Esther spoke to Hathach and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. And so what she says to him is basically two things. The first, verse 11, all the king's servants and the people in the king's providences know for any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law. To be put to death. She says, listen, we all know we're all subjects. We all understand that if you go to the king and he did not call for you, there's one law. He has men right next to him. They basically kill you on the spot. And it's sort of funny. I mean, I like the story, how it's unfolding. But if we remember back to Queen Vashti. Remember, she was kind of this. She wasn't killed, but she was sort of banned from the king's palace because she wouldn't call when he called. She wouldn't come when he called. And now the next queen is afraid to go because he didn't call. This guy's like a tyrant, like that he'll just kick you out of his thing if you don't respond to him. And if you come without asking, you're put to death. And the only way out of this, she says, is if you approach him and he lifts his golden scepter, like, oh, stop, boys. Don't take this one. She says, if I, if I approach, yeah, I might be queen, but I'm living in the palace. She goes on to say, like, not only is this a rule, but I'm kind of out of favor with the king. He hasn't even called on me in the last 30 days. She was just one of many. 
She's like, I was last month's news. This is, I don't, it's easy for you to make this request, Mordecai. But it's not so simple. It's not as simple as you're making it out to be. It's not as simple as me just walking up to the king and say, hey, honey, actually, I'm Jewish. And uh, this guy did something. Let's try, you know, this is not as simple as that. And so she sends this message back to Mordecai. Hathach goes back. How would Mordecai like handle this? And I think this is, we don't see the name of God anywhere here. But I believe that verses 13 and 14 are like the key verses of all of Esther. And I think in them, in the silence, you see Mordecai relaying in the shadows about this sovereign, almighty God. And verse 13, he says to Hathach. Now, it's interesting. Then Mordecai told them. It caught my attention. Up to this point, it was him, Mordecai, or Hathach. And now something like, we don't know. But the people are sort of, there's a them now. So them is at least two. So I don't know if in this going back and forth, maybe maybe Hathach was Jewish. And there's like, man, we got a situation in our hands. And this is like unfolding. And these people want to know exactly how is this going to sort of work itself out. And so Mordecai tells them. So now it's Hathach and somebody else or multiple people to reply to, to Esther. Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. That is a sobering statement. He says, hey, sweetheart, my little sweet cousin who's like a niece, kid sister, like, don't think that just because you're up in the palace, you're wearing the crown, that you have all of this luxury at your fingertips. Don't, Don't think that when this edict is executed, that you'll escape the wrath that's about to come just because you're in your little ivory house. It's going to hit you hard. And verse 14, he says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. I love this. See, Mordecai at this point recognizes See, the Abrahamic covenant made back in Genesis that God through Abraham would bring a Messiah, that there would be a deliverer. At this point, he says, Esther, if you don't step forward, God will bring deliverance and he'll do it through another source. There's, you are not the linchpin in God's plan. I'm not the linchpin in God's plan. God has a plan that's unraveling through history. And I love this, this confidence Mordecai says, I, I, all I know is that, that you, you are in a position, and it could be, like I'm getting a little ahead of myself, that, that you could be the one that's used. But if you don't do anything, I know that God will raise someone else up. And if God raises someone else up, you and your father's house won't be spared. You need to, do, you need to take action. Not taking action is just as equal as taking action. You need to do something. Whether you do something or you don't do something, you're, you're in a bad situation no matter how this shakes out. And he goes on and he says, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And I love that phrase. I've circled those two words, who knows. It's been my, like, my, my theme. All, like, this is like, who knows? 
Esther, you're a queen. This is all happening. Maybe God puts you there just for this to, to, to save our people. Who knows? I could be totally wrong. But who knows? This is, this is life walking with God by faith. I don't, I, I don't even know what the next 30 seconds will bring. Let alone, what, five years down the road, ten years down the road. I don't know. When I came here, this is always the time. Like, this time of year, I always started, I don't know, like, I start reflecting on my coming to Valley Center. Uh, this was like a big sort of gamble. I mean, this was like, I mean, this, I mean, in all honesty, like, I was a, I was a Navy SEAL, and then now I'm a pastor, and there wasn't a whole lot of, like, in-between. And I remember, like, kind of really wrestling through, like, is this what I'm supposed to do? And I'm like, who knows? I kind of, I kind of feel like I'm supposed to be up here. Anna seems to think it's not that crazy of an idea. Everything seems to be lining up. Who knows? And it used to drive, I mean, it really bothered me. Like, I had friends who, like, really, like, the will of God, like, oh, yeah, God's called me. And it's like, how do you know? You haven't even taken a step in that direction. How can you be so certain? I'm walking around going, who knows? And I love this because walking by faith doesn't mean that we'll always have all of the answers. It means that we, we walk kind of step at a time. And who knows what God's going to do? Now, in rearview mirror, when we look at the story of Esther and we see how this whole story plays out very clearly, God had placed her in this position for such a time as that to spare God's chosen people so that the Messiah would come through the line. But at that moment that they were living it, the heroes of our story, they're like, who knows what God is doing? I think of Joseph. You know, at the end of his life, when his brothers came, you guys meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And like, because of this, I, there's food and resources for our people. But I don't know that he was feeling that when he was naked on the slave traders block. You imagine going up to Joseph. Hey, Joseph, what God's doing in your life? Oh, this is great. This is like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sold into slavery. Then, you know, I'm going to work my way up. This is then I'm going to be like second in command. And I'm going to have I'm a, no, who knows? I have no idea what God's doing. Stuff happens to us all the time. Who knows? And then she gets the message. And I love at this point, she gets off of the fence. I think she sees beyond herself. She recognizes that or she can't deny that she's in this position. Like, how can I look around? Like, I, it wasn't but a few years ago or a year, however the timeline was, that she was this orphan girl with Mordecai. Now she's queen. She has access to at least show up at the, queen, at the king's doorstep unannounced, regardless of what happens. Other people, couldn't, they weren't close enough to get there. And so she replies to Mordecai and she says, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And suddenly she's connected the, the whole community aspect of 
Go tell the Jewish people that are all out there to fast. It doesn't say pray. I don't, whoever wrote this, I think is like, there's this sort of this ambiguity, but all through the Bible, when you see fasting, you see prayer. They were fasting and praying. I think even talking through this, often when I say fasting, praying just comes out as a second word because that's just how the Bible describes fasting. They were fasting and praying. And so she says, you guys start fasting. I'm going to fast. And I don't, she's going to tell all of her girls that I think that she's just asking for wisdom. I'm about to make this move. I'm going to go in there and I want to ensure that when I open my mouth, that the words that come out are God's leading. And I love this picture because Christianity is not a Lone Ranger sport. Well, it's not really a sport. But for much of my life, I thought, well, we go to church. We want to sort of put on this external sort of image that that I have my life together. I'm okay. I need to kind of share everything's going great. It's just the opposite. This is where we come and develop our relationships, those with one another who are living their life for Christ. Because you know what? Life is going to throw all sorts of things at you. Who knows what God's doing in the midst of it? But to be in a group and to say, you know what? I'm really struggling. I, I am, I have uncertainty. I'm, I'm battling some illness or disease or I'm struggling with my kids or whatever. Like, I love that Don just says, like, he didn't say that during the first service. But he says, I lost my voice because I sinned and I lost my temper and I, like, spoke to my child like that. And so I'm confessing to you guys. There are some churches like, what? He needs to be removed from his position. Of... Not at all. I, I love, like, this is, we are all struggling and we need each other. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. I love that in this story, That the only hero in the story is God. And he's like absent. That they, the heroes throughout all of the Bible. The ones that we kind of make of the hero. You, there's all sort of like insecurities and problems. And lack of faith and lack of trust. But yet Christ through, the, through all. That God throughout the whole of the pages is the only true hero. And that God uses us weak, fearful. Not knowing what's going on. People. And she says, fast, I'll fast. And I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. I will go into the king and he might right away kill me. Because the guys, the men are there poised to kill whoever enters that room. And it takes intervention from the king to stop the execution. And she says, I'll go according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So by the end of this story, she understands. She recognizes that her life isn't the most important thing. That, that this life, it's, it's about the next life. And she recognizes that her life is in her hands. If, if her life is taken, ultimately God's taken her home. And who knows? She certainly doesn't know at this point how the story is going to end. By by all speculation, she would think that I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to be killed. But even if I don't do this, it's still going to happen. Just 
nine months down the road. And so Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. And and this chat, what do I think about this chapter? There are a couple things that stood out to me. The first is like the, the struggle of the characters. We can stand back a, you know, a few thousand years and look at the story. And this isn't a fairy tale. This is Esther existed. Mordecai existed. Xerxes existed. These are all very real people, real circumstances. We look at this story in hindsight and we think, man, Esther is a courageous young lady. That she would stand and make this bold move. But when we read the story here. We see fear. Trepidation. How is she going to handle this? And it encourages me. Because I don't know how to handle life. Quite frankly guys. As a pastor I get people all the time. As a Christian they come. They're struggling with something. And it's like. At the very best, it's like Boy that's tough. I, can't, I don't know how to handle that. Can I pray with you? Like I like can I pray with you? Can I hug you? Can I you know, I don't know how this story who knows what God's doing? I know he's doing something, but but when we're in the midst of it, we can't see the big picture. And the other thing that has just jumped out at me at this in this chapter is this king. The other queen is basically banished for not coming when he called. This one is fearful of entering without his request. This guy calls himself the king of kings. And I can't help but to think of the true king of king, Lord of lords, the king Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe. The the one who Colossians says holds all things together. And he says, come to me. If anyone we should not have access to is this holy, awesome God because of our sin. And yet he says, I will pay the way. I will make a way for you to go into relationship with me. He went to the cross. He carried our sins. He bore the burden so that we could have this relationship with him. And there are those of us who don't know him as savior. And he's saying, come, I don't care what sin you've committed. I've paid for it. I don't care what you've gone through. I will mend you. And then there are those of us who've accepted Christ as Savior, and yet we stay at a distance. And he says, I want to be in relationship with you. John, the young apostle, all through his writings, his command to us, the church, is to abide with him, to walk closely with the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And yet, so often we chase the world. So if there's any encouragement in this story, to think that we have access to the creator. Can any of you this week go and see the president of the United States? Like if we put a quest out this week, like, hey, I want to go sit in his office. Do you think anyone would be successful? Do you guys think anybody would be successful getting a, a senator, congressman, congressman of the state? You, you maybe the Valley Center planning group, you could get access to somebody. And yet the creator of the universe has come. You have access. I know you. I love you. I want you. And so, Father, we thank you.
Lord, your word tells us that um, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, that you desire us to approach you, to seek you, to walk with you. Lord, so often we're pulled astray by our flesh, the world. And so, Lord, I confess that I, I, I want more of you and my life. Father, we thank you that you are a king like no other. And Father, as we read these stories of these heroes of the scripture, Lord, I'm encouraged. Lord, I thank you that you use just real people. You use us in the midst of our fears and our failures and our sinfulness. And and so, Lord, we just ask that, um, Lord, that you would comfort us, whatever fear we're facing, whatever trial we're going through. Father, we pray that you would... um, Just help us to walk by faith, that we would trust you, Lord. That we would stand courageous with you, Lord. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.